Well, this is proving to be quite a knowledge-intensive morning, isn't it? I can see what's going to happen. You know, the people who are not here this morning are going to be saying, what's so what happened on Sunday? And you're going to say, well, I think John Allen was speaking. Can't remember much of that. But I can tell you what a baby pigeon is. <laughs> anyway, let's read together, shall we? And this morning we're reading from the book of Acts and from Acts chapter 2. It's great to be here with you on the morning uh, just after uh, Tom and Megan's wedding. Uh, we were privileged to be at their other church in Bodmin just a couple of weeks ago on the last Sunday they were there before their wedding and uh, it was great. I was asked to pray for them at that point so we've known this was coming up and uh, and all the rest of it and uh, it's it's uh, fantastic that, uh, although there are lots of empty chairs people have been off celebrating with them and uh, although they're not here with you they're still part of what's going on. That's a great thing about the church isn't it? We've just had a week up at Caperney Bible School where I've been lecturing and uh, it was great to see over a hundred young people there keen to study the Bible. We had Hungarians, we had Brazilians, we had South Africans, we had Australians, we had Germans, we had loads of Canadians and uh, even one or two British people and uh, more nationalities than that. They're just the ones I can think of off the top of my head and it's brilliant that the church is such a worldwide thing. In 1942, in the middle of the Second World War, uh, 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 someone became Archbishop of Canterbury, the, the, uh, William Temple was his name, and in his inaugural speech he said, you know what the great new fact of our time is? And he wasn't talking about Hitler, he wasn't talking about Stalin, he said the great new fact of our time is the existence of the Christian church in every country of the world. And so it's gone on since then, and uh, every day, uh, thousands of people become Christians around the world. One of the most interesting things you can do, I think, if you're a Christian, is go onto the Billy Graham uh, website, which is is is, is uh, um, designed for non-Christians and, and and inviting people to become Christians over the internet. <laughs> Because as you look at the page, the numbers change, and you can see people making decisions in Africa, in South America, in Canada, in the Middle East, all over the place. And you can actually watch the figures going up as people join the Christian family. Every day you live, 33,000 people become Christians in Africa. And uh, uh, every Sunday that you come here, 48 new churches open their doors somewhere around the world. That's remarkable, isn't it? There's no religion in the world that has ever had that kind of success. But it had to start somewhere. And that's where we're reading in Acts chapter 2 this morning. What happened after the day of Pentecost, after 3,000 people had been converted, what happened to those new Christians? Well, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's just a little snapshot 
Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is going to tell us some hard facts about the church later on as well. He's not trying to give you an artificial picture here. Later on, you'll meet Ananias and Sapphira, who are lying about their investment in the whole thing and about how much money they're actually giving away. You'll hear about squabbles, uh, arguments about the distribution of food to those who've got nothing. And the, the early church wasn't without its problems in all sorts of ways. But uh, this picture is not artificially drawn. This is exactly how it was, says Luke. It was this great. And it's become a template and an inspiration, I suppose, over 2,000 years to churches in other parts of the world. This is what it ought to be like. This is Christian fellowship at its best. This is the original design. This is the plan. And so I want to look a little bit this morning at, uh, have we got the, can we get the, it's on the back screen. Oh yes, it is. That's great. That's fantastic. At one or two things that just come out of these few verses we're looking at. And uh, there, are, there are really five things, I guess. First of all, you look at the habits they developed as new Christians. What were the important things that characterized their lives from this point onwards? Then the faith they showed. There were miracles being done all over the place. And it was taken as a a matter of course. Then there's the community they built. A community of sharing and caring for one another. We'll have a look at that one too. Fourth, there's the approval they received. Praising God and having favour with all the people. People looked at them and said, what they've got is good. It's fantastic. I don't know what they're on, but I want some. And the church started to grow because they received the approval of the people. We'll look at that as well. Add all of that together and the fifth thing starts to happen. The growth they experienced as a result of that. So that's where we're going in the next 20 minutes. Let's just have a quick look at some of those things. First of all, the habits they developed. It says right from the start, those new Christians devoted themselves in various ways. That's important, isn't it? It's not unusual for people to come forward, accept Christ, make a decision, sign a card, put their hand up at a big meeting. But often the results don't amount to anything very much. And clearly somebody got round those 3,000 people pretty quickly and said, look, here's what you've got to do. And they devoted themselves to four different things that we hear about here. The first habit they developed was they became devoted to the apostles' teaching. And that word teaching doesn't mean uh, they started to share the apostles' opinions or they started to read the apostles' books or anything like that. The teaching isn't a body of doctrine in this Greek word. The teaching is the actual process of teaching. So what it means is they came again and again and again to those places where they could learn what the apostles had to teach them. When you think what the apostles knew, uh, it was important After Jesus' resurrection, they'd been on a 40-day training course in Galilee with the Lord himself. And Jesus had explained how he fitted into the Old Testament uh, scriptures, how it all fitted together, and who he therefore was on the basis of that, what they had to do for him, and what the, the future would hold for them. All of that massively important stuff that would lead to the foundation of the church all over the Roman Empire that they had just learned over those 40 days before the ascension. Then they'd had about six weeks to get it sorted out in their heads. (laughs) And I think it's no um, accident that the Holy Spirit took six weeks to come because he had the time to think about it. And and, and, uh, what happened then was uh, that the day of Pentecost broke out. They were ready for it. They were ready to teach. And uh, so uh, they were teaching all over the place. Obviously, there was no big place in Jerusalem where 3,000 people or thereabouts could get together 
over 3,000 because Jesus, when he died, must have had about 120 followers, we reckon. So uh, there was no place they could get together. So it obviously happened in small settings here and there. It says that the believers still went into the temple courts and possibly had some meetings of their own in there. But generally speaking, they were in small groups. And these new Christians would find out the homes they could go to, the places where the apostles were doing their teaching, where things would be passed on to them, and they devoted themselves to that. It's something that's got to go on in their lives, isn't it? When you stop learning, (laughs) you stop receiving from God. Now, teaching doesn't always mean that you learn new things that you never knew before. If you're looking just for novelty, you soon start thinking that you're, you're able to predict the date of the second coming and stuff like that. That's not what God wants to do. He doesn't want just to give us new bits that we never learned before. Sometimes teaching means reminding us of things that we're in danger of forgetting or taking us back to the basics in a way that we'd never quite seen before. It's not always new stuff, but it's vital that that's going on into our heads bit by bit as time goes by. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the teaching. But second, they devoted themselves to fellowship. It wasn't just a case of going off on their own and learning by themselves. It was a case of coming together and sharing their experience with other Christians as well. And having become Christians, they felt the need to be part of that community. Let's face it, they hadn't had an easy time. Uh, After the crucifixion on the first day of the week, uh, when the disciples gathered together in the upper room, they were scared. They had been, they'd just seen their master arrested and crucified. The same could happen to them. They were feeling guilty because they'd run away and left him to die on the cross. And uh, they knew that they were already being blamed for stealing the body from the tomb. They were in a, a, a bad situation because they'd been more or less cast out from their own people. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were living in danger. They didn't know quite what the future would hold. Suddenly they were a new community all by themselves. And it didn't feel good until suddenly there was Jesus in the midst and it all started to come together. And so knowing the presence of Jesus with them, when they see people becoming Christians, they add those people on naturally to the fellowship that's there. And that's important too, isn't it? Being part of what's happening. I guess that's less of a problem at Great Parks than it is at Belmont Chapel because we get people floating in and out on a Sunday morning all the time. And it's often hard to keep an eye on who's with you and who's not and what's going on in people's lives because there are just so many of them. But uh, the disciples clearly were determined that that wasn't going to, 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 to mean that some people became fringy, just sat on the edge, Uh, took what they wanted from the meetings, but nothing much more. They were going to get really involved. They became devoted to fellowship as well. And in fact, the way that God has put the church together means that you and I have different spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts are what the others need. (laughs) We are given those gifts, not just so that we can say, oh, I've got such and such a gift, and I'm good at this, and I'm good at that. It's so that we can use those gifts to bless one another. So if you're not truly involved in the fellowship in the way that you ought to be you are robbing other people you're robbing yourself as well because you're not finding the the place where you should be using those things and finding satisfaction through them in the way that god has designed you and so your spiritual gifts belong to the fellowship and you need to be part of the fellowship for that to happen So there's teaching, there's fellowship, but there are two other things they're devoted to as well. One is the breaking of bread. Now that's an important one, isn't it? 
Because this is the, 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 the phrase that's uh, used here is not simply talking about what we've just done with bread and wine, although that's an important and central part of the whole thing. It's more than that. It's just sharing everything you've got together and thanking God for it. And in the early church, as you probably know, that was done in the form of what was called a, a love feast. And it seems to be here in Jerusalem, in these verses, that that actually happens. The Christians would get together for a kind of, calling it a potluck supper, seems a little bit unspiritual, but that kind of thing. Everybody could bring what they had, and they would share together. And sometimes, of course, it went wrong, and you, you read in First Corinthians, don't you, about how some people were arriving early and eating the lot, and then the poor people who'd had to finish the washing up and come in later on had nothing to eat, and some of them were even getting drunk there and stuff like that. doesn't happen in great parks, I'm sure about that. But uh, they'd have this meal, and then they would celebrate the communion service together to say, Lord, it all comes from you. It all goes back to the cross. And whatever else we're thankful for in all the the things that you've given us, we've got to be centrally thankful for that. So the breaking of bread included all of that. And they were devoted to it because constantly their Christian lives had to go back to the cross and say, this is where it all comes from. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. I can't put on airs. I can't pretend to be anything special. All I can do is go back to the cross and admit my unworthiness and your amazing love for me. So we need to do that again and again, don't we? And the fourth thing was prayer. That was the fourth habit that they put into their lives, the habit of just spending a lot of time talking to their Heavenly Father, talking to the Lord Jesus, whom, having not seen, they loved. Well, maybe some of them had seen him. Lots of them must never have seen him before they heard on the day of Pentecost what God had done through his his death and resurrection. But they had a connection with him, whether they'd known him while he was still alive or not. They had a relationship with him which had to grow. And the more time they spent praying on their own and with other people, the more that relationship, that connection grew. And so, you see, in this whole thing, they wanted to learn. And so they devoted themselves to the teaching. They wanted to share. And so they devoted themselves to fellowship. They wanted to worship. And so they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And finally, they wanted to know God. And so they spent time in prayer. Now, we are living in a much more pressurized age than those people. And we may not have as much free time at our disposal through the day as those early converts did. But however we use our free time, it's important that we build the same habits into it. If you want to be a stable, growing, joyful, mature Christian, those things are absolutely basic. And they become habits after a while. Habits are useful things, aren't they? I remember when somebody gave me once a mega file of facts. Do you remember file of facts? That's what we all had before we had iPhones. Uh, little sort of uh, loose leaf diaries into which you could put all sorts of pages and inserts and all sorts of stuff. And somebody gave me, they're usually about that size, weren't they? Somebody gave me one that was about that big made by some company in America that uh, uh, thought, said, this is our 30-day planner. Use this and you'll never need anything else. I thought, yeah, well, I'll need an articulated truck to take the thing around with me. But uh, um, it was passed on to me, I think by my father, because he had no use for it, and I passed it on as quickly as possible to somebody else as well, because it was just so big. And this, uh, what interested me, what I remember about it, was what it said in the instructions. Because it said, you will think when you look at our planner, you could never work with this. There is no way that you could ever make this part of your life. Just try it. 
Just try it for three weeks. They said, psychologists tell us that if you repeat an action for three weeks, just three weeks, it becomes a habit that it's very difficult to break. That's interesting, isn't it? If you just do things for 21 days, it's amazing how they become part of your life. (laughs) And when you look at those four things, those habits that they built in in those days straight after the day of Pentecost, you've got to ask yourself, how much am I putting in intentionally into making sure that those habits are important to me? But that's just the first point, Uh, so let's move on to the second. The faith they showed. After talking about those four things, it says, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And you might think, well, it doesn't happen today, does it? And in fact, this week, I had to talk to a girl uh, who asked for a conversation, a very bright 18-year-old girl from Texas. And uh, she had lots of questions, but one of them was, why is it? When you read the Bible, it's full of miracles and nothing like that is happening nowadays. I mean, did it really happen? Or was it all exaggerated? And if it did really happen, why is it not happening now? Well, some people think it is happening now, of course. And uh, you see all sorts of adverts like this all over the the internet for miracle crusades. Uh, Jesus saves and heals. Uh, Sick of cancer, leukemia, ailment pronounced incurable, deaf or crippled. We can handle the lot. And some of the claims that are made are pretty big. Uh, The power of his presence. Jesus will show up for sure. Uh, victory unlimited, uh, 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 miracles and breakthroughs, signs and wonders, healing and deliverance, experience God's power. Well, it seems to me that that's not the normal course of things in the Christian life. And uh, while I'm not uh, denying the good faith of any of those people, sometimes when you look at what's going on, it doesn't amount to very much. I, I, I'm not saying that anybody in any of those adverts I've, I've shown you there are fakes, but this guy definitely is. This is Peter Popoff, one of the worst things ever to happen to evangelism. And he's still at it. Call now for your free miracle seeds, he says in that advert. Popoff was shown up in 1986 because he would go around the crowd that came to his meeting saying, you over there, the lady in blue, you've got a a, a problem, haven't you, with haemophilia? Or whatever it happened to be. And people would be, yes, how did he know? It's got to be God. No, it wasn't. It was a little transmitter in his ear. And his wife and team who had done some research on these people before they came were saying to him all the way through the meeting, that man in black at the back there, he's got a leg that's not been healed for 20 years. And so he was able to do all of these fake miracles. As a result of the expose in 1986, he went bankrupt the next year. But he's still back and he's doing it again. Experience your continuous stream of miracles. Call now for your free miracle seeds. Well, it's miracle seeds this week. Sometimes it's miracle water. Sometimes it's miracle cloths. But the whole thing is just so bogus, it's not true. Now, the miracles the disciples were doing here, the apostles, it was nothing like that. It just flowed naturally out of who they were. And uh, what I had to say, I think, to the Texan girl last week was, well, God is still doing miracles. He's still in the business of the miraculous. But it doesn't mean that you're going to see miracles all the time. As Philip Yancey points out in one of his books, um, There were whole centuries in Bible history where God was silent, where nothing happened. And the trouble is because you read all of the miracles close together, you tend to forget the spaces, the things when God was doing something quite different. And the signs of the apostles, that that clutch of, 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 of miracles early in the history of the church was super important at that time and in that place. 
And we must never close our minds to the idea that God can step in and do something absolutely miraculous. But he doesn't always do it all the time. And sometimes uh, there are countries where uh, they need more miracles than we need in the affluent West. So the kind of miracles God does amongst us can be quite different often from what happens in other places. I remember going to Pakistan a few years ago to talk to some, some uh, brethren missionaries to do some Bible teaching for them. And I ended up uh, speaking at a big uh, convention uh, in Lahore where lots and lots of poor people streamed in every day, some of them walking 17, 20 miles to get there. And they were Christians who had nothing because they were living in a country where uh, they were denied higher education just because they were Christians. They couldn't get prestige jobs. They couldn't live in certain areas. And they were the poorest of the poor. And I've never had this anywhere else. But at the end of every session I did at that convention, there was a whole queue of people waiting to see me afterwards. Not to put me right about what I'd said, which is what would happen in this country, but uh, instead to say, can you pray for me? My wife is losing her sight. My mother's uh, uh, foot is, has gone gangrenous. And what they wanted me to do was to pray for miracles for them. And at first I was, oh dear, I'm not so sure about this. But what I realized very quickly was they were living in a country with no social security, no national health system. If God did not help them, they were absolutely stuck. And it's amazing how routinely those believers were seeing real miracles happen. God was really answering their prayers. I guess in this country, the kinds of miracles that God does more often are things like putting marriages back together again, helping people stop cutting themselves, setting people free from all kinds of addictions. But he's still doing it. The important thing is that Jesus had said to his disciples before he went, you're going to do greater things than you've seen me done. And it was all happening. Why? Because they had the faith to believe in it. And that's the important thing. To be open to the power of God. To realize that however he's going to work, whether it's going to be a stream of miracles as at Pentecost, or whether it's going to be different ways that he works, he can do it. He can introduce himself to people and bring them to faith. He can step into situations where people are needing crisis surgery and it it seems bleak and prayer can, can, can sort it all out. He can still do the things that he did in previous ages. We just have to have the faith to believe. And that was the second thing about them, wasn't it? Third thing, though, was the community they built. They all got together. And notice what they shared. First of all, they shared their possessions. They looked at the the, the things in their house and said, I don't really need that. When did I last use it? Maybe three years ago now. Now we could get rid of that. That could fetch some money. And so they sold it and they gave the money to whoever had need. In other words, they shared their problems together. They didn't just think, oh, what a shame about brother so-and-so. He's got no money. Oh, God has blessed us. It's a good job. They didn't do that. They shared what they had. And so they took other people's burdens on themselves, as it says we should do in Galatians chapter 5. Bear one another's burdens, says Paul to the Galatians, who are so super concerned about keeping the law. And he says, if you do that, then you fulfill the law of Christ. And just not observing other people's problems and saying, oh, I'll pray for you. But getting stuck in, bearing those burdens, sharing the load. That's what we're called to do. And that was what they did. They shared their possessions, they shared their problems. They also shared their time. They kept meeting together, didn't they? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They wanted to be together. And you can't get to know people unless you share some time with them. 
We went to a really interesting party yesterday. Anthea runs a Bible study group at Belmont. That's a, a lady from, from Nigeria, Anthea. She's from Nigeria, come, comes to. And uh, uh, she was 50 uh, this weekend, so she had a big party to celebrate down at the community centre. And she invited Anthea. She said, you will be my honoured guest. And uh, Anthea said, well, we're kind of busy that afternoon. We'll try to drop in for 15 minutes. Uh, but, uh, and she said, that will be very good. So we turned up. And uh, it, was, it was weird. I mean, it was right out of our culture. It really was. Uh, for a start, when we turned up at the proper time, nothing was happening. They took another hour to get ready before anything actually got moving. But when it did get moving, wow, for a start, we found we weren't going to get out in 15 minutes because as an honoured guest, she had to go and sit on the high table. And I got to sit there along with her. And so we were, we were stuck there with this row of dignitaries who were special. And, and then we sat there and waited for a while. And what happened was she then made her entrance... Uh, we hadn't seen the birthday girl up until this point because she'd been off getting changed. And she was wearing the most elaborate Nigerian costume and headdress you could imagine. And so she processed in. And it was quite a small hall, but it took her 15 minutes to get from the back to the front because she was dancing and everybody else was dancing with her and they were doing all the stuff and coming down the aisle. And uh, every time you thought, they're coming now, nope, they'd move back again and then back. And it took 15 minutes. And then there were lots of speeches, and Anthea found she had to give a little talk about, about Lydia, which she wasn't expecting at all. And it was just all off the cuff, but, you know, it was, oh, what, what's going to happen next? And then, when they'd done that for a bit, she disappeared again and came back in in another dress. And the whole thing happened all over again. And we thought, we're never going to get to great parts tomorrow morning. The party's still going to be going on. <laughs> and then uh, she went out again. And uh, we went home at that point, actually, we, we said our uh, goodbyes. But Anthea met someone in the street later who'd stayed a little bit longer, and she said, they did it all again. She came in in another outfit, and they did it all over again. And uh, she had already predicted that the party was going to go until 11 o'clock that night. So I'm not sure how many changes of outfit she got through in that time. But the interesting thing was time just stopped, you know. It was African culture. It didn't matter how long it took. They, here was a bunch of people that just enjoyed being together. They were Christians, they were praising God, they were saying the odd prayer here and there, and, uh, and all st- stuff was going on, and they were having real fellowship with one another. And in our time-pressured lives in the Western world, we tend to forget just how good it is to spend time with people. But that's what they did. They shared their time together. Day after day, they were together, and they shared their homes as well. Because having no meeting places, how do you break bread? How do you hold a communion service? You do it in the front room. That's what you do. And so all over Jerusalem, you have these homes which become centers of light and excitement because Christians are worshipping God there. Well, we over time. So let's just uh, say, uh, uh, cover those last two points. But first, before we get there, this is something that just went on in the history of the church. It became a style that people adopted all over the Roman Empire as they became Christians. Clement of Rome, at the end of the first century, maybe 70 years after the things that we're reading here, said this, let the strong care for the weak and let the weak reverence the strong. If you're Christians, let the rich man bestow help on the poor. Let the poor give thanks to God that he gave him one to supply in his needs. Let the wise manifest his wisdom, not in words, but in good deeds. And that started to flow out to the rest of the world as well. It wasn't just the Christians together who were having a a good time with one another. And uh, so you find all sorts of stories like this one. Year 234 in Armenia, which is where the red bit is on the map there. There's a plague. People are dying. And because the plague is so contagious, their bodies are just being left in the street. Nobody dares touch them. 
And the, 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 the dogs are coming and eating the bodies there in the street. And society is just breaking down. And the Christians roll up their sleeves and start burying bodies. Start taking care of the sick at the risk of their own lives. And Eusebius, the church historian, says, In this way death, waging war with these two weapons, pestilence and famine, destroyed whole families in a short time so that one could see two or three dead bodies carried out at once. But every day some Christians continued caring for and burying the dead, for there were multitudes that had no one to care for them. Others collected in one place those who were afflicted by the famine throughout the whole city and gave bread to them all, so that this thing became noised abroad among all men, and they glorified the God of the Christians. It's when Christians react like that, with an outgoing love and a care for everybody, that folks start to pay attention. There's one, uh, two final things to talk about. No, one final thing. Now we've done three of them. The fourth thing then is, is this, the approval they received. I don't know if you've heard about this guy. He's been in the news over the last uh, couple of weeks. This is Israel Folau, probably the greatest rugby player that, rugby, that uh, Australia's ever produced, certainly their best hope of winning something this summer. And he's a Christian. And he's in trouble. In fact, he's just been sacked from his contract, which was a pretty expensive contract. And now Australia are going to have to look for another best player. Why? Because he put something on his Instagram account which has caused tremendous ripples right through Australia. As I say, Fallow is a Christian. I don't think he's the most diplomatic of Christians. And uh, he certainly has strong views about various things, including homosexual practice. Put that to one side, because it's, it's, it's not... Uh, a case of what he thinks about homosexuality here. But he, he put something on his Instagram which said, Warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters, hell awaits you. Repent, only Jesus saves. Now, I think he wasn't very wise. He borrowed that from a ministry in Texas and just put it on his, his Instagram account without thinking much about it. But you can see, if you read what he wrote about it, that it's not because he's saying, you're going to hell, I hate you, you're awful. You're... He's not homophobic in any sense whatsoever. He's simply saying, Jesus Christ loves you and is giving you time to turn away from your sin and come to him. And he's simply trying to do something like that. But he's been treated as someone who's a, a hater. This is the headline from The Independent. Israel Fallout, Australian rugby player, breaks silence over homophobic Instagram post and says he's willing to quit. We terminate his contract following a homophobic Instagram post. And uh, the article says this. Fallout stood by both his Instagram post and his beliefs and said that he's willing to, uh, to pre- you know, prepare to quit the sport if he has to. It's obviously a decision that's in the process right now, but I believe in a God that's in control of all things. Whatever his will is, whatever, whether that's to continue playing or not, I'm more than happy to do what he wants me to do. Asked if that means he's prepared to quit rugby, Fallout said, Absolutely. First and foremost, I live for God now. Whatever he wants me to do, I believe his plans for me are better than whatever I can think. If that's not to continue on playing, so be it. In saying that, obviously, I love playing footy, and if it goes down that path, I'll definitely miss it. But my faith in Jesus Christ is what comes first. And he says, he rejects the idea he's a homophobe. I think of it this way. You see someone who's about to walk into a hole and you have the chance to save him. He might be determined to maintain his course and doesn't want to hear what you have to say. But if you don't tell him the truth, as unpopular as it might be, he's going to fall into that hole. What do you do? And so he says it's love, it's concern for others that's put him in that situation. And as the storm has echoed around him, it's come home to Britain as well. This guy, Billy Vanipola, one of the best players that we have, plays for Saracens. Um, 
And if they manage to get ahead of Exeter Chiefs, it will be his, his responsibility. And uh, he, when he saw that post on Instagram, uh, tweeted his, his support for it. And uh, he said in, in his post, there comes a point when you insult what I grew up believing in that what you just say, enough is enough. What Fallow is saying is not that he doesn't like or love those people. He's saying how we live our lives needs to be closer to how God intended them to be. As a result, he's on the carpet as well. He's met the RFU and been warned about his future, future action. And he's been told that uh, uh, all kinds of things can happen to him if he dares to say that uh, certain kinds of people are going to hell. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? And the point I want to make of this is that these two guys who are in serious trouble with all of the politically correct organisations, nonetheless are, are getting a great deal of public support. Why is that? Because they're nice guys. They're people who are not just famous rugby players. They're not just stars. They're people whom other people like. And that, to some extent, is, is, is what's making people think, why would they say something like this? Because they are just such likeable people. Now, I think if they'd been people who were feared and, and, and hated anyway for their rigorous, humorless stance, they wouldn't stand a chance. But because they're people whom everybody likes, they stand a chance of being listened to. <laughs> and they're in trouble, as the Christians in Jerusalem were going to be in trouble in just a few weeks when Stephen was stoned and they were made to flee the city. But nonetheless, people look at these guys and say, they're good, they're nice, we like them. And it was the same with the early Christians, wasn't it? Praising God and having favour with all the people. That's the way it should be. People may reject our message, but they shouldn't reject us as people because they should see in us something that's human, that's warm, and that reflects just a little bit of a glimpse of the character of Jesus. So those are the four things. The habits they developed, the faith they showed, the community they built, the approval they received. And that led to the growth they experienced people became Christians and we want our churches to keep on growing and I think we need to follow that kind of pattern let's just pray together for a second shall we and then Ray will come back so Heavenly Father there's so much more we could say about all of these things there's so much to learn from just a few terse verses there in Luke's account help us to develop the right habits in our own lives individually and as a church Help us show a faith that's open to you doing anything wonderful that you want to do through us simply because you're the God of miracles. Help us be people who build a community in which sharing on all sorts of levels becomes the rule and not the exception. And help us in doing all of that see the approval of people around us, not so that we can feel good, but so that Jesus can be glorified. And in all of that, Father, we pray, build your church. Make it strong. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.